Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated and let's pray now and ask God again for his help. So Father, we pray that you would speak to us now from the pages of your word through your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear your word to us. Eyes to see the beauty of Jesus in these verses and hearts shaped by your love for us. In Christ we pray, amen. Well, what our world and what the church needs most today is a vision of God. We need to behold the Lord in his glory and be gripped by him in such a way that it shapes and transforms everything about us. To have our lives shaped by who our triune God is, what he has done, and what he's promised to do. And we've been going through Galatians because this letter gives us that kind of vision of the one true God. And it does so by being crystal clear about the most important reality in the universe, the gospel. And Paul has repeatedly, over and over, from the very first words of this letter, hammered home the glorious truths of the gospel, that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, so that God alone gets all the glory. We, he, he's, he, he's said it so many times that I feel like I'm the broken record, preaching the same sermon over and over and over, so much so that you could probably get up here and do this today. But that's why, because we need to hear it. It's what we need to be crystal clear on the gospel. That God's magnificent, wonderful, saving grace has come to sinners. But that grace has massive implications for the lives of everyone God saves. And Paul puts it this way at the beginning of chapter 5. He says in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set you free from sin and death. So then, therefore, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And you remember that Paul writes this letter to the Galatians because there had false teachers who came to them after Paul left preaching a different gospel, which Paul says is actually no gospel at all. And they didn't outright reject that Jesus is the Savior. They just rejected that Jesus alone saves sinners. And they preached that in addition to faith in Jesus, people must add works of the law in order to become part 
of God's people. And so this letter, with its massive view of God and his glorious saving grace in Jesus Christ, applied to sinners through the power of the Holy Spirit, this letter shows over and over and over that if we make any human ability or activity the basis, the foundation, the ground of salvation, we actually walk away from the only one who is able to save us. In other words, if you add to Jesus' finished work, his saving life, death, and resurrection, if you add to Jesus' finished work, that's the same thing as rejecting Jesus' finished work. Because it's for freedom that Jesus sets sinners free. For freedom. Free from the curse of the law. Free from the power of sin and death. Free from the present evil age. Free to live by faith in Jesus, by walking in step with the Spirit. Free. Free in Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so Galatians' vision of God, made crystal clear by the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, not only meets the great need of the world and the church today, it also shows the massive implications for the daily life of everyone God saves. Because the gospel is true, because this is fact, therefore, we stand firm in our faith, in the freedom that Jesus gives us by walking in step with the Spirit, by being led by the Spirit, by living by the Spirit, by keeping in step with the Spirit. See how Paul goes from the glorious truths of the gospel to now talking about what that means for us over and over in just these short few verses. Walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. And so then the primary way that we see this walking by the Spirit in our lives, the primary way this happens is the Holy Spirit's work of sanctifying God's people. Sanctification is the ongoing, progressive, slow, incremental work of the Holy Spirit to make God's people more like God's Son. So justification is God declares sinners not guilty and righteous because of Jesus by faith alone. Sanctification is the ongoing, progressive, incremental, slow work of the Holy Spirit to make God's people more like God's Son. And so up to this point in the letter, uh, Paul has stressed justification. God declaring sinners righteous. Not by anything they do, but by faith alone and everything Jesus is and has done on their behalf. So by faith alone, Jesus took your sin upon himself and paid for it on the cross through the shedding of his blood. By faith alone, that fact becomes true of you. By faith, Jesus died the death your sin deserved when he was laid in the grave. And because Jesus was sinless, he conquered the grave and rose from the dead. So by faith alone, Jesus' full, true righteousness is now fully and truly yours. 
by faith alone. And so sinners are justified as God declares them not guilty and counts them, reckons them, declares them truly righteous through the faith that unites them to his saving, save, saving son, Jesus. But now, Paul moves from stressing how God justifies sinners to stressing the implication of God's justifying sinners. And this is extremely important to understand, or else we undo everything we did in the first four chapters. If we get this wrong, we, we'll get everything wrong. The ground of the gospel, the foundation, the ground of the gospel is God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. It's the ground. But the goal, the goal of the gospel is God sanctifies sinners as the Holy Spirit incrementally makes them more like his son. So we have the ground of the gospel and the goal of the gospel. And we cannot conflate or confuse the two. We can't confuse, mix up, get wrong justification and sanctification. This is actually one of the big arguments of the Reformation. And Martin Luther said it this way, we are simultaneously justified. We are truly righteous in Jesus, yet we are still sinners. Which we see the last time we were in Galatians, that flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. But if we mix up, if we confuse justification and sanctification, we're going to be led back to slavery. Mixing them up, conflating them, leads to guilt and shame. It leads us to bear a heavy burden we cannot bear. It's for freedom Jesus sets sinners free. Not for a to-do list that you will never be able to do. And so the gospel declares the good news that God justifies sinners in Christ alone, by faith alone. But the, then the gospel calls us to live in that freedom, to stand firm in the faith, to walk by the Spirit, to live out our freedom in Jesus. So we have the truth of what the gospel declares, the fact, what God has done in Jesus by the Spirit. But then the gospel calls God's people to now live out that union with Jesus every day. And Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Will means what? Wants, desires, aiming for, what God's planning. The will of God, what God desires in saving a people for his glory. So what does God desire? What's he want? What's his will in saving a people and making them his in Jesus? Their sanctification. They're becoming more like Jesus. It is simultaneously true. We are truly righteous in Jesus. And yet, we are not yet fully like Jesus. And so God's will in saving a people for the glory of his name is their sanctification. And do you see then how that has massive implications for every one of God's people every day. For you, if that's you, today. If your faith is in Christ alone, what is God doing today in you 
and in you every day he gives you. It's not the only thing. There are many things. But for our purposes today, what is God willing for you today and every day he gives you? You becoming more like his son. Because you are justified. Do you see that? You are justified. That's why he's making you more like his son. Because you are justified. No, not so that you will be justified. You see how easy it is to confuse these or get these mixed up? You are justified in Jesus. So God is making you more like Jesus. He doesn't make you more like Jesus so that you will be justified in Jesus. If we get these mixed up, we're submitting again to a yoke of slavery. Because the ground of the gospel is all of grace. The ground is not do this and God will love you and keep you. But the freedom, the freedom our justification in Jesus gives us isn't license to live however we want. The ground of the gospel leads to the goal of the gospel. In other words, because God loved you eternally in his son, now walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. And we looked at those verses that list out the works of the flesh, verses 19 to 21 last time, uh, that are against the Spirit and the freedom we have in Jesus. And freedom isn't living however you want for whatever you want. Freedom for which, the freedom for which Christ has set us free is living out our union with Jesus by walking with the Holy Spirit. So verses 22 to 23 contrast the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And so we're going to study uh, the fruit of the Spirit this summer uh, as I want us to see how the glories of the gospel's good news, of the ground of the gospel, the fact, the truth of what God has done in Jesus Christ. I want us to see how that leads to the gospel transformation the real change of our daily existence, of our relationships, of our marriages, of our reasons for getting up in the morning, for our hope for continuing on through the days and years of our lives. The ground of the gospel is good news for us every day. But as we study the fruit of the Spirit, we can't confuse the how of God's saving purposes with the why of God's saving purposes purposes. I don't know if you've ever gone through a study on the fruit of the Spirit, but far too often, in my experience, it becomes another yoke of slavery. You need to do. If you're not doing, well then. But we can't confuse the how of God's saving purposes with the why of God's saving purposes. We must, though, remember the how, the ground, leads to the why. They are connected. So we got to make those connections, but we can't conflate them. We can't confuse them. The how leads to the why. Because God doesn't save sinners by demanding they bear fruit. That's another gospel. That's no gospel at all. And we can praise God that what must happen for, salvation, for the salvation of sinners is already finished. It's finished. It's paid for. Jesus has done it. But because Jesus has already done it, 
those God saves will bear the fruit of that salvation. And so two things to mention here before we turn to the first fruit of the Spirit. First, this is not a call to perfection. The fruit of the Spirit and the Spirit being present in our lives is not a call to perfection. Do you remember verse 17? You can look at it real quick. Uh, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those Uh, For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so though we're united to Jesus by faith and are truly righteous, we're not yet completely sanctified. We are justified, not yet completely sanctified. The flesh still rages within us and battles the spirit that's now at work with us. So, brothers and sisters, the flesh and the spirit will oppose each other until the day we die. And so while the call to walk by the Spirit is a call to real, increasing, manifested in our lives holiness. It's a call to progressively becoming more like Jesus. It's not a call to perfection. It's not that you will never sin. It's that in Jesus, through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, our lives will not be characterized by sin. Our lives will increasingly become less aligned with the works of the flesh that Paul lists in verses 29 to, or, uh, 19 to 21. We'll become less aligned with the works of the flesh and more aligned with the fruit of the Spirit. Because we can now kill our indwelling, indwelling sin. We can now put to death the deeds of the flesh as we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the promise. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, verse 16. Not because you can overcome it, but because the Spirit is stronger than the flesh. And so we can walk by the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. And as we do, our lives become more aligned by grace with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And so we live daily in this tension, though, of this raging battle. And I don't know about you, but I don't really like tension. I like to resolve it. But, but the promise is that this battle is going to rage until the day we die. So, don't give up. In this battle that rages, one way we can try to ease the tension is just giving up. But we don't give up. Because we won't ever be sinless. We can't, we, we, we can't just say, oh, I just... The, the flesh keeps you from doing the things you want to do, but the Spirit gives you the power to overcome that. So don't give up. But neither do we give in. We can't give up or give in. Because those whose lives are characterized by the flesh will not inherit God's kingdom. So we can't just give up, nor can we just say, oh, oh well, oh, oh well, we're just going to sin because I can't be perfect in this life, well, then there's no reason. So don't resolve the tension by giving up nor by giving in, but walk by the Spirit so that we will be made more like Jesus. And the second thing then to notice is the word fruit. And a couple things about this, this word fruit. First of all, it's contrasted with the works of the flesh. You, you notice it doesn't say the works of the Spirit. He doesn't say works of the flesh and works of the Spirit. He says works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit. And I think that's because works emphasize what we do. 
They're things we accomplish. They're, they're things we carry out. But fruit is something that grows. It grows slowly and over time. And since this fruit is something that grows by the Holy Spirit, I think what Paul is doing is emphatically declaring that it isn't the Christian who has to produce these things. It's not something that we do, nor is it something that we produce. Because Jesus has set us free from sin and given us his Holy Spirit, the Spirit, when it is present in the life of a believer, will grow these things in his people. The Spirit will transform you by growing these things in you. And the next thing to see is that fruit is, is singular. And there's much debate about it being singular, yet then Paul lists nine fruit. So which is it? Are, are they all one, or are they nine different things? And I don't think we're actually meant to choose between the two. I think it can be both. Uh, on the one hand, they are a collective whole. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Just like when you see a bowl of fruit on the counter or on a, on a table, you don't say, that's a lovely bowl of fruits. Or if you do, you get corrected, right? Even though it's true. Everyone looks at you like, no, oh, that's a bowl of fruit. What's wrong with you? Okay. So it's a collective whole. All nine are going to be present and growing in the life of the Christian, even if not equally at any given time. So they are a collective whole. And if you rarely show even one of them, if you rarely show self-control, if you are consistently unkind, if what regularly comes out of you is harshness, if you are impatient, you should not assume the Spirit is within you. And neither should you assume the Spirit's at any if you are patient. But you don't see any other ones. You could just be temperamentally patient. You could just have a long fuse. It could just be something that is about you. It has nothing to do with the Spirit. It's just naturally your personality. And so all nine will be present and growing, even if not equally at any given time. But I think we can take them individually, because they are different. We can study each one because the evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life are these different singular qualities, these virtues, these characteristics. And that's the final thing I want us to see about the fruit. They are their virtues, their characteristics, their, their qualities. They're not works, they're, they're virtues. They're more about our heart. They're, they're more about the kind of people we are, rather than a list of things to do. Now, of course, these virtues will inevitably govern our behavior. You can't be a person in whom the Holy Spirit is growing love and then always be unloving. They will inevitably govern our behavior. But the fruit of the Spirit is more about the kind of people God is making us to be when he's justified us. Do you see? So, brothers and sisters, the test of whether or not the Spirit is at work within you is more a question of who you are than it is what you do. 
It's not not about what you do, but it's more about who you are, who he's making us to be. It's less about what's on your calendar on any given day and more about how you go about the things on your calendar every day. It's not what religious activities you do. It's not even about what you know. What we see in this list that Paul lays out for us in verses 22 to 23 is that the test of whether or not the Holy Spirit is actively at work and present in your life is who you are. Who you are. I like how Tim Keller uh, says it. He wrote in his little commentary on Galatians, is there fruit growing in my life? We are saved by faith, not by fruit, but we are not saved by fruitless faith. A person saved by faith will be a person in whom the fruit of the Spirit grows. And do you know why? Because of verse 16. When you're walking by the Spirit, your life will not be characterized by the things in verses 19 to 21. Because the Holy Spirit gives you the power to overcome those things. It actually grows the opposite within you. And when that fruit is growing... Those things will not characterize you because they cannot grow in the same soil of these fruit. And so let's turn then to see the kinds of fruit that will be uh, evident and manifested in the life of those who walk by the Spirit, those who are justified. The first fruit is love. The first fruit is love. And this month, uh, our culture not only celebrates but is actively promoting and demanding acceptance of an unbiblical definition of love. And so while everyone agrees that we must be loving, no one really agrees on what that means. The Bible says God is love, uh, but as one pastor put it, our world says right now, love is God. And we get to define it however we want. But what does love in verse 22 mean? Well, well, Paul's already mentioned love three times in the span of just a few verses here in chapter 5. He says our faith will work itself out in our lives through love. Through love. Which then he goes on to say we'll serve, we'll serve each other humbly in love. So love is humble service of others. And then he quotes, we're to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, which Paul gets from Jesus who got it from the Old Testament. And we see this in Jesus when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And in Mark 12, he answered this way. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So when Jesus begins talking about love, he defines it in two ways. He defines it vertically and horizontally. He defines it in terms of God, and he defines it then in terms of neighbor. And so the love that the Holy Spirit produces in God's people will be seen in two ways. A supreme love for God and a deep love for our neighbors a supreme love for God, and a deep love for our neighbors. So first, the Spirit produces the supreme love for God. We have to remember, again, we aren't saved by loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
We're not saved by that. Because we're saved by the God who loves us, we'll love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love God supremely because he first loved us and saved us. And that is actually the context which Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy 6. He, he, Moses is reminding the people as they go about to go into the promised land, God saved you. He loved you. Now remember him. And as you go amongst the nations that he is sending you to to have this land, he says, remember God and love him supremely. He says, this love will show up in your lives. It will be manifest. It will be evident. It will be real because it's going to be with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, mind, and with all your strength. And that's just a real fancy, longer way of saying you have to love God all the time with all that you are. All of yourself, all of the time, love God. Which is actually really helpful because it takes something that could be really theoretical. Love God supremely. Like that's the, that's the Sunday school answer, right? Yep, love God supremely. Okay, it's Thursday afternoon. What does that mean? So it takes something that could be very theoretical and makes it extremely practical. With all of ourselves, all of the time. We love God by obeying his commandments, Jesus elsewhere teaches in John 13. By following him, by following his ways, by shaping the aim of our lives around what he's said and done and instructed us. That we put every ounce of effort into God getting the glory for all we say and do. We love God all of, with all of ourselves all the time with every decision that we make. And we long for his name to be exalted in the world through us. And so we love God when we ask, how can God get more glory in this situation or through me right now? In other words, Jesus says, a life well lived is one that loves God with all of yourself all of the time by following his ways. And we're freed from sin to walk by the Spirit as we remember how much God first loved us which is Paul's context, which he brings it back. He said, it's not so that you can live however you want, make decisions however you want, but it's for freedom Christ has set you free. And we then love God supremely by remembering how much he first loved us. And one of the ways we do that, particularly at our time in our culture, is remember that we too are now what we uh, or, excuse me, we remember that we too are not now what we once were. That's how we love God, by remembering what he saved us from. That we too were once lost and rebellious sinners, hating God and loving every minute of it. And yet it was as we were on our hell-bound race, God rescued us. He intervened and brought us to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we now are not what we once were, all because of God's love. And so it's as we remember God's great love for us, proved by how much Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, 
It's easy to see then how the Spirit produces in us this love for God, which will lead then secondly to a deep love for our neighbors. They are connected. That's why Jesus connects them. The vertical and the horizontal. The supreme love for God will manifest itself in your life through a deep love of your neighbor. And Jesus then in Mark 9 and in the Gospels quotes from Leviticus 19. And he does so because he takes again what could be very theoretical, love others. Okay, well, what does that mean? It then makes it very practical. We love others as we love ourselves. When the Holy Spirit is producing this love in you, your attitude towards others will be the same attitude you'd like others to have towards you. Your care of others will be like the kind of care you want others to show you. Your support of others would be the support you'd like others to give you. And the grace you extend to others will be the kind of grace you'd like others to extend to you. And at this point, I think sometimes the discussions go off the rails when people bring up that some people need to be taught self-love because you can't love others unless you love yourself. And I'm not dismissing the real traumas people go through or have to deal with, but that's not Jesus' point here. Jesus' point is that everyone has a sense of how we want to be loved and treated, how we want to live and be able to move through this life. We all know something of the genuineness of which we long our relationships to be characterized by. We all know something of the love and the dignity and the respect we want to experience. And so we all know what it's like to be mistreated. We all know what it's like to be looked down upon. We all know what it's like to be harassed or humiliated in front of a group of people and want to crawl into a hole. And to love your neighbor is not only to not do those things which causes those kind of experiences and feelings, but to also stand up for others when they're being humiliated, when they are crawling metaphorically into a hole and going in after them. To love others as you want to be loved. And so in one sense, yes, you can't love others unless, unless you know the deep love of God for you in Jesus Christ. That God loved sinners so much that he sent his only son to save them. When we were dead in sin, who became your neighbor? Jesus. He is the ultimate neighbor who loved us by going to the cross and dying in our place the death we deserved. Jesus is the neighbor who, because of his supreme love for God, loved us despite our sin and our shame. And he gave us his righteousness. And because Jesus is our neighbor who frees us from sin and death, we're free to love God supremely because Jesus first loved us. And we're free to love our neighbors like this because Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us. So this love the Holy Spirit grows in God's people will be defined and then evidenced in our lives by the kind of love God has for us in Jesus Christ. This is the kind of love the Holy Spirit produces in us. It will be true of us. 
and it is defined by sacrificial love of others. The gospel, the gospel isn't love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself, and then God will save you. The good news of the gospel is that God has loved us in Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he gave himself for us. And so, because of that great love, now in the freedom for which Christ has set you free, love God supremely and love your neighbors as yourself. And for some of us, we need to do this by remembering that we're not now once we once were. We have to show this compassion that there is a world around us lost and dying. And inevitably, without God's grace intervening in their life, are on a pathway to never experiencing true love. What's glorious about this room is that if your faith is in Jesus, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And, and you, you have an eternity where you will never know what it is like to not be loved. Jonathan Edwards said, heaven's a world of love. And think about that. You are on your way to an eternity of never-ending, never-failing, never-stopping, infinite love. No matter what happens because of how Jesus loved you. And so this world is lost and dying. And this month is going to be a tough one for many of you. For some of you, you're already facing it at work. And me or any of the other elders would love to talk with you about how we might help you navigate these things as, as the unbiblical kind of love is thrust in your face and how you might stand firm in truth and in love. But we must not forget that we too were once far from God. And he loved you in spite of how much you were loving yourself and not loving him. And so for some of us this month, we might need to show more compassion. We might need to, yes, speak the truth, but remember, but remember that, that these, the, the people, our neighbors around us, are image bearers who God made and loves. And they have worth and value because they bear his image. And so let us not forget to be compassionate in the call to love our neighbors. And for some of us, we need to remember that love is speaking the truth. And that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And it might be very costly for you to speak the truth. But it is loving. It is loving to speak the truth. It is not loving it is not loving to call what's evil good. And I know it's really easy for me to stand up here and say that for some of us in this room are experiencing deep pressures at work with a livelihood on their line, maybe. But we're called to love God supremely. 
We love him by following all his ways, by keeping his will central in our lives. And we also love him by loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. So let's pray for the grace for each other to help, to walk with one another in a world where, I mean, when July 1st ends, it doesn't like our, you know, problems go away. But we live in this world where, where God has set us to be his ambassadors for the glory of his name, to be his citizens living out for the glory of his kingdom here. And the primary, the first way Paul tells us to do that is to love God and to love our neighbors. And so in the freedom we have, stand firm. And let us call our neighbors and the nations to know the true love that they desperately long for, no matter how they inevitably are trying to seek it or find it in. That the only way they will ever experience true, infinite love is by knowing the love of Jesus. And five points, how else will they know? Unless those who have known this love show it and declare it to them. So let's pray for the grace that God would help us to love him supremely and love our neighbors as we love ourselves because God has first loved us. Let's pray. Father, we long more and more to be a people characterized by love and characterized by the kind of love you have first shown us in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit and his work in producing this love in us, grow the kind of love that loves you supremely and loves our neighbors as ourselves for the glory of your name we pray. Amen.